everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter, here with Andrew Vance, author, creator, recorder, host of the Choose the Hard Way podcast. This is our second episode of our special Tour de France collaboration. We're talking about the first three days in Denmark, uh, time trial on Friday, and then two sprint stages Saturday and Sunday before we get into the quote unquote real racing in France tomorrow. Andrew, what are your initial takeaways from what we just saw over the last three days? You know, Spencer, before we jump into those initial takeaways, I want to give all of our listeners here the opportunity to be in touch with us. I'm at Vonson at Hardway Pod on Twitter. Spencer, you are at BTP Cycling? Yes. Yeah, and we would love to hear from you. So if you have questions, I am hearing from some of you. But if you have anything you'd like to hear us talk about, if you have any questions, comments about the Tour de France or things that we're saying. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line, drop us a DM, whatever. Let's get the conversation going. So uh, I think what's really jumped out of me so far in the tour this year is just a, a big question and is what should Wow Van Art be writing for? Who does he want to be when he grows up? <laughs> it's, yeah, I love that as a 27-year-old band He's, I'm much older than 27, but he's a 27-year-old man. I often think, man, when this guy grows up, he's going to be so good. Um, I, I, I'm of the opinion he could win this race. Not Maybe not in the form he's in right now with the preparation he's had, but if he put his mind to it, I think he could win the tour. I don't think he wants to. I think that's kind of a miserable life if you're naturally heavier like he is and like heavier in a relative sense. Um, he can win green. He could probably win green for the next six years if he wants um it's odd to say that that would seem slightly disappointing i mean that would that's like one of the most impressive feats we would have i mean i think sagan's won it seven times i think he could match that you know he should probably win a stage maybe start there let's get him a stage win at this tour um he's been amazing with the three second places in a row i could be wrong i think alfredo binda in 1930 was the last person to do that um, what do you think, Andrew? What do you think his goal should be? Well, I think next to Magnus Court putting a mustache uh, atop the KOM competition, and I am curious if there's been another writer with a mustache who has worn the King of the Mountains jersey. The mustache, of course, being one of the most descendant styles in gravel racing, as you know, Spencer, but now on the rise in pro road cycling. I didn't notice it, this. I, I, was wor- I was worried the mustache is working its way over. Watching Magnus Court closely this weekend. It looks like it has. It's teleported into professional road cycling. So, you know, where does that go? That's, you know, we'll get into that later as we take an even deeper dive. But as it relates to Wout, my feeling with Wout, you're right. Perhaps a few kilos too large to be a Grand Tour winner at the moment. But it really does feel like Wout is a Grand Tour winner riding in a a quote unquote support role. It's not really a support role. He's there to win the green Jersey. He's there to win stages. And as we talked about on our last episode, you have to wonder incredibly strong team over there at Yumbo Visma equally. What is this doing to burn this many matches from a, a stress and psychology point of view this early in the race, particularly now that Wout has come up second three times in a row he wants that stage win so bad. And also they're going to need Wout 
throughout this race to support their other objectives. And he's going for the green jersey. It just seems to inject a lot of complexity into an already complex differential equation. So I'm wondering what's going to happen within Yumbo um, and what's going to happen to their yellow jersey aspirations as Wout pursues stage wins as well as the green jersey and is, of course, wearing the yellow jersey right now. Let's not forget that. I don't think I've seen anything quite like this in a long time. A, the yellow jersey competing in bunch sprints when's the last time you saw that it's extremely rare and then yeah the fact that he's in yellow he's a support rider that does happen i mean eves lampar on the first day was riding support in yellow but yeah you're right they're going to use at, at the moment like incentives are aligning like they're at the front all day for these stages which is burning a ton of energy but they would probably be there anyway because they're so worried about Ruglitch crashing um it's probably worth it for them to burn the energy so they're, they're probably not burning any more energy than they would if Wout wasn't in yellow. This definitely feels like they're throwing him a bone after two years where they haven't let him ride for himself, basically, except for stage wins. Um, potentially, they've even not thrown in the towel, but conceded that Pogacar are stronger and green and you know three Wout stages, a Ruglet stage, a Vindegaard stage would be a fantastic tour, maybe second and third place overall. Um, it does not feel like they're super focused or at least solely focused on the GC like UAE. Um, we can talk about them in a second. They've been kind of odd. Like they're not super strong. I thought they would be stronger after really splashing some cash this off season. And they're just kind of like, we got sitting in the back, almost crashing two days in a row. So to answer your question, I, I guess it works at the moment. Like What's good for Wout is good for the team to be at the front, to be out of trouble, to try to get a position to win stages. He really only has one lead out rider, Christophe Laporte, which is even more impressive that he's the best at positioning in these sprints with this. He only has a single rider helping him. But, you know, that's two resources. Like, how are Laporte and Wout going to be in the mountains? Like, is Wout going to kill himself when he's riding for green? I mean, maybe, maybe he'll get over, he'll work the early mountains and get into a valley, get the points and sit up. And that's fine. But yeah, it makes me a little, I'm, I'm actually a little surprised it's happening. I'm not sure I've seen anything like this for a long time. Yeah. And the look on Wout's face following these stages, like going back to the opening time trial, when Wout realized that he had lost the stage to Eve Lampert, I, he looked like he was going to cry. He looks incredibly upset when he realized he wasn't going to take the stage. He wasn't going to take the yellow jersey there on day one. He wants this so bad. I mean, as as all of them do. It's. Uh, I was kind of reflecting yesterday, um, just in the discussion about who was going to take the sprint on stage three. And I know you and I talked about that. We'll we'll get into it later. I thought that for sure Caleb Ewan was going to take it yesterday. My thinking was no one's more hungry than Caleb Ewan going into that finish. Equally, these are professional cyclists no no one wants to win a stage more than any of them like they all want it incredibly bad they're on the biggest stage in the world so i don't think there's any any quality of desire among these riders but it was incredible to see the emotion on wout's face um as he sat there in the hot seat watching the time trial unfold and realizing he lost the stage same thing following these stages and he does seem like an incredibly mature emotionally level rider i mean he's been a champion a world champion from a very young age he's come up he's almost a a drago like character a machine um 
yet the emotion is coming through. He wants it so bad. He's not satisfied with merely being in the yellow jersey at the Tour de France and likely to take the green jersey. No, it's an odd, it must be an odd thing, you know, where it's objectively good. He has yellow. Then that's impressive too. He lost out on the win in yellow on stage one and we were texting like, oh, how disappointing. Would be would have been so fun if he was in yellow. And then it's like, nah, just watch. I'll just get it the next day. Like, ah, not no, a big deal. No big deal. Unless he's 10 seconds in front of me, I can pull the yellow jersey back. I mean, that was really impressive. But yeah, it must be disappointing just to be finished second. He's finishing second every day. Um, I have a gambling podcast and we have all these complex theories. Like, I think you could just bet if, if you took out the high mountain stages and just bet on fan art to podium every day, you would make an outstanding amount of money throughout the tour because they're offering positive odds on it. Like you can more than double your money with the Van Art podium bet. And it's like, do these bookies watch cycling? The guy will finish on the podium no matter what. So, I mean, it's, it's really impressive. Like I think he's a 68% podium rate for the year. If you move that into bunch sprints, he's probably in the nineties. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I've ever seen anything like that. Obviously, like if he was an American, if this is an American sport, it maybe it's like this in Belgium. It would be like a guy doesn't he doesn't have the clutch gene. He can't win the, the big race. Like, what's his problem? But he does actually. You would think that he finishes second every time. You remember the seconds, but he does win quite often too. And I think he's going to win multiple stages of this tour. These first stages don't even really suit him that well. I mean, the time trial, but that's not even really a great time. He's more of a longer time trialist. Um, the two pure sprint stages, not fantastic for him. I mean, Ewan, Gronavagen, Jakobsen are all faster than him, probably Philipson. Um, the fact that he could finish second on those stages is it was really impressive. And then I don't know if you've looked at it. After this rest day, we have some interesting stages. Like tomorrow, there it's it's really hilly. It's on the coast of northern France. Um, there's a climb that tops out with 10k to go. I don't think the big sprinters are going to make that. Then we have Paris Roubaix Day on stage five on Tuesday or Wednesday. Hills, mountains, the rest of the week until the rest day next Monday. So, I mean, it, it just gets better for him. And then that third, right? I don't know. It's kind of weird. There's three rest days, so I get thrown off. The the next week, like the second week, is is like mountains and hills with the sprint stage mixed in there. I think that could be good for him too. So. It's it's crazy to think, but the good stuff has hasn't even come for Van Art. And then that kind of brings me to I, I just have a note here. Wout's revenge. I think it probably feels good for him to be in yellow while he was stuck on team duty. I mean, do you get that sense that this is like nice for him to have the tables turned on Vanderpool? Yeah, absolutely. I think your theory that Yumbo Visma is throwing him a bone. They want to keep him happy. They had to do something because we saw what he was capable of last year winning a time trial, the double Mont Ventoux, and then winning on the Champs-Élysées, which is insane and I believe unparalleled in the history of professional cycling. Um, they, they needed to give him something. So he's an incredibly hungry rider, and we know that he's going to be all in supporting the team, I think, for the rest of the tour. <laughs> Equally, he's got to hold on to the green jersey and has these green jersey aspirations. So it's, it's part of the the drama inside of the race that I think is going to be incredibly exciting to watch unfold over the next couple of weeks. If we hadn't seen him crack, I wish he had won the Dauphiné because if he had won the Dauphiné, you could start this narrative of like, you're going to win the whole thing. Who said Roglic is the leader? Is it Van Art? But we saw last year, there was really one mountain um, 
that he cracked on. If you remember right before that first rest day, um, rest day, and then he cracked the Dauphinade pretty hard on a high mountain. So I don't think, he, as you say, he's he just weighs too much. I don't think he can do that in his current weight. But what have you made of? I mean, Vanderpool was good. I would say not as good as I thought he would be in the opening time trial. And then he's been straight up chilling the over the last two days. I don't know if you saw this video of him like playing. Someone kicked him a soccer ball before the start of yesterday's stage, and he was like keeping it up and he tried to hit it back to them and he just like launched it into the canal and then walked away. <laughs> this person's soccer ball is just gone. But I mean, he is, you know, he's just sitting at the back, just like really just taking it easy. Maybe I'm naive. I kind of thought he would try to be fighting Van Art for green. Um, I don't quite, I mean, maybe he just doesn't like bunch sprints, but then I've, I swear I remember him in like 2018, 2019. There's that like that amazing video of him like moving someone out of the way with his hands in a bunch sprint and then winning. It just maybe he's just decided that's not for me. Like I'm not a skilled bunch sprinter. We have Jasper Philipson. That's not my job. I'm going to rest up until stage five. I mean, how, how are you reading that situation? MVDP is riding in the back of the Peloton because he's actually recharging the laser beams in his eyes that a laser used to destroy his competitors. I think that's what he's doing. I think that he gets bored easily is the feeling that I have. And I think that we see this reflected in his at times impulsive and seemingly non-strategic writing style. You know, we talked uh, earlier in the year about how at times it seems like he's using races for training and just playing with his competitors and he loves drama. That's the feeling that I get. He loves drama. He loves pageantry. He loves going for incredibly difficult wins. And I'm speculating here, of course, but I have the feeling that the green jersey perhaps would seem boring to him relative to the more dramatic feats that he tends to gravitate towards in terms of the style in which he wins races. So that's my feeling. I think you're right. I think he's just saving energy, waiting for the moment to do something dramatic with a lot of panache and flair. So I think that's that's what coming what is coming is a victory in dramatic style. I mean, I would bet he has stage five circled. That has to be a huge that's kind of how I was reading him sitting at the back. I mean, you could almost see his boredom. Like it's it's really rare to see a pro in two really 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 stressful opening days of a grand tour look actively bored right and i think we, i think we saw it um testament to just how good he is though that he can i'd actually be curious to see his power files i bet he's working significantly less than van Aert and all those fools fighting at the front so yeah yeah i'll be betting on him for stage five the minute they release the odds for that i think he might um i mean this is perfect for him 157 kilometers over cobblestones it doesn't really get better for Vanderpool than that. Um, so EF, I'd say a mixed bag of an opening weekend. I was did not I was not excited about their jerseys when I saw them released. It pains me to say though, seeing them in action, I actually thought the bikes and the jerseys looked really, really, really cool. Um, Magnus Court, I guess it's cool that he got the KOM jersey. Is that kind of weird? I. I thought he might be trying to compete for these stage wins. Maybe they deduced they were too flat and fast and he could not beat the the big sprinters in these flat finishes. But I mean, he's a world-class rider and 
I kind of thought he was, it's cool for him too, perhaps because he's Danish and he's in Denmark and it was like maybe more the biggest crowds I've ever seen on the side of a road for a bike race. So th- maybe that was cool to get out and soak it up. But man, like to see a rider that good, just in soft, pointless breakaways to get the KOM jersey, which is usually reserved for like a continental French team who needs to drum up as much publicity as possible. I was a little surprised by that. and then. Combine it with the Bissinger. I thought that was a massive mistake they made in the time trial. I don't know how they how they screwed that up. They claimed that they had focused on this time trial for like two months. They had a skunk works department called Project Yellow, and his tires were just overinflated. Overinflated. Like they just needed to let ten psi out of those tires. Like the guy was slipping and sliding all over that course, and then Iran's been crashing every day and having to chase back on. I just it's been. I've been surprised with maybe a little bit of the lack of focus or even throwing in the towel of like, well, we know we can't win stages here, so we're just going to get the curly KOM jersey. Am I being too negative on EF or how did you read their weekend? My read was, was the opposite of yours, Spencer. I think that this was a highly strategic move from EF and they wanted to have a big marketing victory early on. You know, I believe that EF is perhaps the most sophisticated marketing team that's competing in the tour and you're right magnus cord is an incredibly high potential writer and he may have expended a lot of energy in in these early breakaways in order to get into a, a jersey that you know confers status upon him certainly and it is an honor to wear the jersey equally it's we're, we're not in the high mountains this isn't where the duels are happening amongst the climbers but i think ef just doesn't have an incredibly high level of confidence in what they might achieve later in the race. And they wanted to have something on the board for their sponsors besides their collaboration with Palace. So they now have that. And I think they're going to continue to ride hard, of course, and they're going to be going (laughs) for stage wins. But I think that that's, you know, a bit of a relief because if they didn't have that and they struck out on every stage going forward, then from a marketing point of view, I don't think they would get the ROI that they want out of the stage other than perhaps from Jonathan Vauder's Twitter, which of course uh, generates a lot of eyeballs. So that's, that's kind of my read on that one. I also, just for a moment, I wanted to jump back to stage five and Vanderpool. Uh, going back to this idea that Vanderpool approaches many races as training for something later, I agree with you that Vanderpool is likely is a likely winner of stage five. Equally, I could imagine that he's thinking about this as a race simulation for a future edition of a classic, right? So I think he he might be thinking like, hey, here's a chance to have a run at these cobbles under race conditions because we know that he wants to to win all of the cobbled classics. And this is a chance to have another go at them under incredibly high pressure circumstances to prepare for 2023. So that's one of the things I'm thinking about that. I also wanted to jump back to stage one in Vanderpool as well as Wout. And let's talk about helmets for a second. I know that this is kind of played out if you've been following. This the is tour. the top of my <laughs> notes list. This is the first thing I have written. Yeah, if, if you've been following the tour closely on social media, we can get into what's happened with cycling helmets and time trials if anyone out there was following speed skiing in the 1980s, the helmets now look like speed skiing helmets. Um, but 
something that I noticed was, as I'm sure many of you did, is Vanderpool was wearing a Canyon time trial helmet that I was doing a Google image search. I think that it has the same shape as Broncol helmets that the U.S. national team was wearing in like 1985. It uh, was perhaps, you know, I'm speculating here, but look like one of the least aerodynamic helmets any rider was wearing relative to the uh, the shoulder width helmets that we're now seeing on um, some of the other riders. And similarly, you know, Yumbo Visma, we've seen them struggle with helmets and time trials in the past. Of course, Primos in the, I believe it was the 2020 tour when he was wearing, I think, an extra small helmet that he couldn't fit over his head in that final time trial. I, I read that as way too big and it was just <laughs> falling back off of his head. Okay. That was a disaster, whatever yeah. it was. Well, whatever it was, the Yumbo helmet is similarly, you know, it's aerodynamic, but it's not on par with these fourth dimension helmets that we're now seeing. Spencer, I know you're deep inside the sport. So did you, you know, did anyone tip you off that shoulder width helmets um, and oversized goggles were coming for this time trial? Did you know no. that this was in the cards? No, I was blindsided by this. And and I will say, like, I think a lot of the aero stuff is is absolute BS. Like, if you notice specialized, they don't even they got rid of the binge. Like, they don't even have an aero road bike anymore. Those guys are all on traditional frames. Um, something that does matter a lot for time trials, though, is helmets in the, in the speed suit in your position. Because what's think about like how small like a bike is really just two triangles. Like it's pretty small. Your head is is massive. It's out there. It's the first thing that that wind is hitting. So your helmet really does matter. And same thing with what's on your body. We'll talk about that in regards to Aaron Thomas in a second. I don't know how that happened, but. I don't, it's like, I don't quite know what is going on in the sport. Like were helmets not arrow before are the, are we sure these helmets are more arrow than the ones that came before? Or they just like the specialized helmets with the, like, it looked like they just had tooth surgery with the buffs that came down. Can that really be faster? And if you notice Yves Lampard was the only specialized rider not to be wearing that weird helmet and just had a normal arrow helmet on and then won the race with like an absurdly fast time. So it's not clear to me that, I mean, or like is 1980s ski tech the most cutting edge aero technology? It, there's a chance that it, it, it is not. So I, I was, yeah, I don't know. I'm just curious, like what, where's the data? Like who says these ski goggles are faster? Maybe they are, but some of these helmets and goggles were like really, really, really wide. I mean, may, maybe there's a theory that it's like pushing the wind out around you and you're cutting through it faster. But I was really surprised by, by some of that. One, I think we're going to see the UCI banning some of the helmet styles that we saw, or they're going to create a rule that your ears have to be exposed. Oh, oh yeah. Underneath the helmet. We'll never see that. That helmet will be banned by the second time trial. I mean, that was, I was embarrassed for the sport. That was not a good look. I I want to I want to dig into that a little bit. I mean, definitely a lot of hot takes and anti. I'm calling it the uh, the Steve Jobs because you know if Steve Jobs had extended his mock turtleneck into full turtleneck territory, then amputated the turtleneck and then wrapped it around his head so that he looked like a Revolutionary War 
soldier who had been shot in the face and was treating the wound. <laughs> that's that's kind of what I saw with that specialized helmet. But equally, you know, we're both fans of F1, as I'm sure many of the listeners are. And I sometimes question why there is such a traditionalist bent in cycling media in particular and really an anti-innovation stance. If anything looks a little like slightly different, your ears are covered, so you can't see the ears. So what? I don't know. It's not like riders are going to go out and start removing their ears to get more aero. Maybe they will. Maybe you'll be seeing that at, out at your local crit soon. But I do wonder, are we stifling innovation in the sport? And should we be applauding innovation that's happening within the very tight strictures and rules that the UCI has? So when something like this pops up, which I think is the probably the biggest thing since uh, the Danish team pursuit shin tape incident at the Tokyo Olympics, this is incredible innovation. Like it really blew my mind, honestly, that this much could change with helmets in the course of a year at a race. I think there's, there's two things going on here. Like, yes, the UCI is actively stifling innovation. Like the bikes in the nineties were faster than the bikes now. Like that Lotus TT bike, or like, if you remember like Bianca Reese had like, they were not two triangles. Like they were really unique looking bikes that the UCI does not want that to happen. Like they don't want teams because those Lotus bikes were like 300 K a pop. So you can't really have it like, Ineos would just have the fastest bikes and it would be like F1 where you'd have to have a lot of money to be able to compete. To you just go, you could just go buy that off Alibaba today. I'm sure you could get some uh, carbon manufacturer in the Far East making that for like $800 now. <laughs> but someone, the new bikes, like team, like the British team and track, like they're creating bikes that are so cutting edge and so expensive. Like no one can even compete. Like the US doesn't even qualify for the Olympics in track cycling because we don't spend enough money on our bikes. So they don't want that to happen. And I think the other thing is like, A, just F1 stuff looks cool. And maybe there's not a trust with like, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, like Tom Cruise, a little anti-Semitic actually. I didn't love it. The portrayal in Tropic Thunder of the agent where it's just like, is there a guy like that in a room? Just like big helmets. Big vises, like we want them big. Like there's not a trust with me that this has actually been proven to be faster. They're just like, you know what's going to sell? The big helmets. Like I'm not sure that, I guess covering up your ears, it, it, that is somewhat innovative because I, yeah, what an ear is kind of anti-aerodynamic now that you mention it. But yeah, I just don't trust that a lot of this stuff works. And I think it's, they're just trying to scam people into buying like, your helmet's not fast enough. Get a bigger helmet. Like, I don't know. I would want to see the wind tunnel data stuff on this. Yeah, probably. I mean, we have to remember that like all industries, the purpose of the bike industry is to make you think that you need to, to buy more things that are better than what you currently have. And I can't let this episode go on without mentioning, as we discussed on Twitter, that Tom Pidcock was running rim brakes and rode to 15th, I believe, in that first time trial. Right. I didn't I didn't even know they made a rim brake TT bike. Like what was going I what was with that decision? Do you know anything about that? I have no idea. If anyone knows, we would love to hear about it. Hit us on Twitter, Spencer's at BTP Cycling. I'm at Vance and at Hardway Pod. We would like an inside tip on how Pidcock got away with riding a rim brake Pinarello time trial bike that's no longer in production. We have no I idea. Think, 
I think they're faster. Like, I don't think that that's a rim brake conspiracy theory. Like, I'm pretty sure that disc brakes are not aerodynamic because you have a massive side foil on your bike that anytime, especially if you're in a city and there's gusting winds through the streets, I mean, think how big a disc is. That's pretty, it's a big solid thing that's just catching sidewind, crosswinds. It stands to reason. And, and given that in that time trial, having highly sensitive braking seemed quite important. I mean, it was wet. It's a slip and slide out there. And Pidcock wanted to be on rim brakes, right? So, yeah, it must have been a significant advantage. Equally, we didn't see other riders on the team running rim brakes. So, it's a bit of a head scratcher. I'm not really sure what was going on there. I do know that one of the uh, the most important things in a bike race beyond aerodynamics going back to stage one is that air stays in your tires. And we saw Ghana puncture again in a time trial, which for me took me back to uh, the 2021 Giro where Ghana punctured in the final time trial. And I'm just wondering, like, what do you think is going on there, Spencer? No, yeah, it's such a good point. I mean, how many kilometers do you ride between flats? Probably many. It seems unbelievable that you could be puncturing. I mean, these are not long races. They're like, this, is, this was 13 kilometers. I think the one where he punctured was like 24 kilometers. How, how, what are the odds that you could be flatting and i think they go through and sweep the course too so it's not like there's a bunch of junk on the road i mean the only, the only thing i can imagine is maybe they're getting really aggressive with the tire pressure and i don't know he's like burping the, the air out he's hit he's denting the rims um maybe they're just going like i know they have a really smart aerodynamist his name is dan bingham um really brilliant guy perhaps he's pushing them onto really supple tire compounds that ha almost have no flat resistance whatsoever but you know it's really slow like not having air in your tire like there's something to be said for not flatting during a time trial i mean that i think that really costs the win like what, what do you think is going on there i was confused by this how this could happen yeah we see a lot of new equipment rolled out during the tour de france and again going back to the idea that the purpose of bike companies other than bringing us joy through the equipment that they provide that we use to go out and ride our bikes in the world, which is fantastic is to get us to want more things that we don't currently have tires. Of course, are something that you have to replace periodically. So you're going to have to get new tires at some point. And the tour de France is where a lot of new tires are rolled out. They're debuted. I noticed that continental debuted what's supposed to be its fastest, tubeless tire ever i believe it's the 5000 tt tour de france it's officially spencer they're officially co-branded with the tour de france so big reveal on that tire that's a huge huge moment for franco german relation by the way yeah it'll be in a german country or german not, company and not a cheap one either like it's not cheap to do something with that official badge of the tour de france i also wonder yeah, it's interesting marketing move there because I, I don't, well, actually their target market might be people who have really high-end bikes that potentially don't know that much about tires and see Tour de France written Ooh. on, yeah. right? It's going to be like, I'm sure it's a $200 per tire tire or something like that. 
it's super fast. But if you're a dentist on a Pinterest, no disrespect to dentist, just got my teeth clean last week. And I, <laughs> I'm deeply, deeply grateful uh, that there are um, oral healthcare professionals out there. But whatever, you're somebody who maybe has a lot of money, you have a $14,000 Penarello, and you think, I'm going to, you know what I need? I just got in the sport. I still have hair on my legs. I need to save like eight watts. So I'm going to buy $400 of tires that might flatten, you know, out there on my first ride. I'm going off a bit here, Spencer, but I think that what's going on is that there does seem to be a lot of experimentation with relatively unproven equipment. It really crux moments in professional racing. I mean, we saw this at uh, Perry Roubaix. Uh, I'm trying to remember when the Enios rider was in the front and flatted out of the race, and then they put him on overinflated tires, and he just like oh, it was a uh, Gianni Muscon. Yes, and, yeah, it yes. was. The, it was that was a fun addition, the October one. Yeah, that was, was incredible. Already. But I like we've seen this in a lot of different contexts where is. Pro cycling at the highest level keeps bouncing back and forth between, and a lot of this has to do with specialized, specialized marketing and experimentation. But remember, they had all of their riders on clinchers for a while. They said decisively, clinchers are the fastest wheels. Yeah. They had the year when they got rid of tubeless after trumpeting tubeless is where it was at. They went to clinchers, then they took the clinchers away. They went back to tubeless, said tubeless was the fastest. And then, of course, we still have a lot of pro riders on tubulars, which because you do have some friction between the actual inner tube and the sew up inside of a tubular, they're actually slightly slower than tubeless tires. But in tubeless tires, generally, you're running a sealant, right? So I think that we're seeing compounds that maybe, not maybe, I just like they're not that durable or they're having issues, as you said, with burping. It is hard to imagine on a TT course they're being burping in the tires. It doesn't look like they're hitting a lot of square edges, but equally. There was like a cobblestone section. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I did. I mean, this goes back to my distrust. I remember the specialized clincher. Like we're on clinchers now. Clinchers are the fastest. And then I did put one, I got a hold of one of these like prototype time trial tires, put it look on. you, imme wow. Immediately flatted, like within 5K, so probably speaks to like what's going on here like maybe they are technically fast but no one's at you know no one where are they based it's that town it's it's north of like santa cruz no one's in the hq saying like maybe we should make sure they don't flat like that's good right and then by the time the team gets it it's too late like the die has been cast ghana is also a large human and i wonder if you know, the testing of tires, I wonder if it's targeted at a human his size, like if the bike human combination that they're using to to test tires and tire compounds. But anyway, like, yeah, I thought that was bizarre, like Ghana flatting again. Again, it seems like it happens like 50% of his major time trial. Yeah, it does seem like it. I did, on that topic of flats, Spencer, question I had for you. Now, I know you're a former pro-level racer in the United States, and you've raced on a lot of courses. Kansas State champion, by the way. There we go. Big, big, big win there. I'm just Multi curious. Multiple wins, by Do the you way. still have that Kansas State champion uh, on your jersey today? No, no. And it's like if I won, I always wanted to win a Colorado State champion because you get like a jersey and you get cool stripes. Kansas, they're just like, get out of the state. We don't want you here. 
What do they let you, you into? They let you into Perry State Park for free if you have. Oh no, you're probably banned from Perry State Park. <laughs> they don't want you back. Get out of here. That's why I had to leave the state. Well, anyhow, in all of the races that you did, I'm sure that you've raced on courses that are bound by barriers, barriers of the type that have the protruding feet that we see in the Tour de France prior to that finish straightaway where they do now have the angled barriers where it's harder to hit the feet on the barriers. They're but angled, when, but then they put these little things sticking out. Yeah, I, I it's, figure that out. I'm, you know, that's one. There are a lot of mysteries about how ASO conducts races and the operational elements of races. I have to imagine that they have millions of dollars of barriers of the old barriers sitting around. This seems like a soluble problem. If you just could throw some cash at it, like if we could get one of the mysterious oligarchs <laughs> behind a professional cycling team or one of the many billionaires in the world who enjoys professional cycling and participating in cycling personally could somebody just buy barriers for aso that riders are not um that don't have protruding feet that riders are you know it's crazy right over and crash there's a guy clark sheehan he's a director for rally great 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 rider himself when he was racing lives in boulder he invented a barrier where the feet don't protrude so like almost every race i ever did after leaving kansas was raced like the tour of California used to have them where he just came up with this thing where it, they're, they're parallel. They're not perpendicular. So you're not running over the feet during the race. And then I remember ASO took over the, the tour of California and we're like, no, nah, we don't like this one. Like we're bringing in our own feet based or our own fence where the feet stick out. So like they've seen that this technology exists and we're like, nah, Clark, sorry, we're not interested in this. And then. They could have like the feetless barriers exist currently and they've chosen not to use them. It's very confusing to me. And it's, it changes the outcome of races. People get injured. I mean, we saw it the other day where Tade Pojakar rode over the barriers, right? And then he finished with at least one flat, perhaps two. Yeah, it did. Yeah, if they didn't have the 3K rule, he would have lost a lot of time. And when you're in a bunch sprint, you can hear like, People are riding on those barriers. Like I have like nightmares. It's like I can hear the clicking of the barriers because, and then you know a crash is about to happen. It's terrible, and they could they could fix it. I really don't understand what they're thinking there. I, I maybe it's more complicated than I'm thinking, and they have to like they're dealing with a local Danish vendor, and they happen to have the feet barriers, and they just take whatever they get. There's a, they need a lot of them, but does seem unbelievable to me could have changed the outcome of the race i don't it, i do want to talk about pogacar in a second i want to ask you two things about the time trial so we mentioned tom pickett getting 15th why did he ride hard that doesn't make any sense to me like are, are they just there just like it almost was like uh like you go to like a cat five stage race with your friends and you're just all out there racing as hard as you can and there's no strategy like it he needs to be conserving energy and losing time so he can win a stage later and help Garrett Thomas try to win the race overall. Like it, I have no idea why he raced that time trial hard, unless he thought he could win it. Maybe. I think maybe he thought he could win it. And no one at the team was like, you probably can't. You've never really won a time trial in your life. Do you think the first stage of the Tour de France is the, is the place to do it? 
Well, that or he was trying to gather beta on course conditions at that moment for that's riders who were going to go after him. I mean, that's a very common technique that the But hadn't team, Garrett Thomas gone before him? Maybe they just didn't. I'm trying to be generous here, Spencer. It didn't particularly. <laughs> I, did. I found it to be <laughs> make sense to me, but maybe they wanted to keep the other riders safe and have the most up to date on the ground information about how slippery it was out there. And or the Jonathan, best the best place to flat a tire. Maybe they were looking for that information. <laughs> Where can Ghana flat? Because I think Ghana was their first rider who went. I, maybe Thomas did go after Pickcock. And then, yeah, Jonathan Castroviejo, who should be there working for people, also went hard. Like, I don't understand, because that's so risky. As we saw with Laporte, Laporte should not have been racing that as hard as he was, and he crashed. I mean, he got lucky. doesn't seem to be hurt, but he could have broke his collarbone and been out of the race on stage one. Yumbo would be in a deep pickle if that would have happened i was shocked that those guys were riding hard and then obviously garrett thomas leaving his vest on speaks to i mean it, these like skin suits are thirty five hundred dollars a pop and it is the most important i've i heard that it cost him 40 seconds i don't know if i could actually believe that because that means he would have won the time trial um but it definitely cost him some time and it just seems like Sure, it's not great for Thomas, but to me, that's on the team. Like the team needs to be like, "Hey, dude, you're not in your race suit. Get that vest off." Like there should be someone checking that before he goes out. I, I was shocked they let that happen. Yeah, this is the team that claims to invent have invented the concept of marginal gains, or at least publicly uh, talks about it the most. And this this was maximal pain. Like they inflicted maximal pain from a time loss point of view on Thomas from this. And yes, there's the aerodynamic aspect of it, but the thing that also is critical is the impact that it has on your core temperature. So I, it really impacts a, a rider's ability to thermoregulate. So I have to imagine that although Thomas didn't talk about this, that he must have become super heated during the race. And like if your core temperature is elevated too much, even in a relatively short time trial, it's necessarily going to inhibit your ability to put out maximal watts. So I think there was the time cost from an aerodynamic point of view. He may as well have been wearing a cape. It probably would have looked a little bit cooler had he worn a cape. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know if the UCI has banned capes as uh, an external fairing on a rider's body. Um, but yeah, it just was not, it was literally not a good look and it inflict, self-inflicted wound there. And then I was surprised that Stefan Bissinger, someone who I probably would like more if his helmet looked less like the Spaceballs helmet, would, you know, they thought, EF thought, and EF strategy makes a lot more sense if you imagine that he was supposed to win the time trial and have yellow, and they would have yellow and the KOM jersey. And like, what an amazing opening weekend for them that would have been. He goes into that time trial, his tires are like way overinflated. Like it's not even close. I heard, and then I, I dug into this. I guess he's so like addicted to details that like he doesn't look at the road when he races. Like he just listens in his earpiece and the director tells him when he needs to break or when he needs to turn. Like he's not even using inputs that he's seen. Sounds cool at first, but then you, you think like, think about like Tade Pogacar or Wout Van Aert. Or Eves on par, like those guys are amazing at just synthesizing, changing information and changing course conditions. So, you know, at, that was like 
trumpeted as like this guy look how serious this guy is but then you're thinking about it you're like well in cycling rarely anything goes to plan that was supposed to be a dry, a dry time trial for him that's what they planned for and that they had all his turns like done in advance he was just going off feel and, and auditory input but then like everything goes foobar you know like stuff gets messed up in cycling and then it's raining they don't deflate the tires enough and he can't you know when it's like a really rainy time trial you need to be looking like you need to see like am i on a wet road or a dry road like what's going on here so that was my take about like what went wrong there the ef like because i was thinking how could they have prepared for so long and screwed this up so bad but perhaps the preparation worked against them because they like do you think Tadej Pogacar knew what this course was before he showed up? I doubt it. I bet he just wrote it an hour before he raced and was like, all right, well, that's the course. It's rainy. I guess I'll do it in the rain. And then he's not, it's not the mental disappointment and mental distraction to him that it was to Bissinger. Yeah, it could have been overinflation. Another thing that we do sometimes see in time trials is that as the race goes on, yes, you have changing meteorological conditions and it might be raining more it might be raining less it might be it might start to dry out you also have some exogenous factors specifically people painting stuff on the road i mean you have the actual markings that are on the road and we did see a number of riders go down you know where there were crosswalks or other things that were painted on the road that were just there to begin with, but you also have people painting things on the road. You don't know what the coefficient of friction might be of a fan painting a lay on the road in giant letters. So that might have changed a bit relative to, and that's where looking really helps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think it, it goes without, it's without saying that you should probably look where you're going, but I mean, that's also modern time trialing. We've, I mean, gosh, like going back to Egon Bernal, Chris Froome, we've seen this so many times where riders in training who are in this position, which is an incredibly dangerous position to ride in, and almost no one, especially triathletes, should be out in the world on these bikes riding in these positions when they're out in the general population. It's just a very dangerous position to be in. It's hard to have situational awareness. It's hard to see. And because of the helmets that they are wearing, they also are lacking some of the auditory awareness, I would think, that you typically would have in a helmet where your ears are exposed. But the factor that we haven't talked about is that throughout the day, as you have riders and team cars on the course, from the exhaust of the cars and the tires of the cars on the road, you can start to get some petroleum on the surface of the road. And it does sound like this was a case of tire overinflation, but you really never know when there like might be a, a tiny bit of oil-like matter that's been deposited on the road by the vehicles that are on the cars um, throughout the day. So that, that's another possibility as well. Although Occam's razor here probably overinflated his tires and well, didn't, I heard, <laughs> didn't look where he was going. George Hincapie said that they ran super high pressure. I'm not sure why. If Botters wants to come on the podcast and defend that choice, I'd be all ears. I don't quite. That seems like a, some big brain move where it's just like, you know what's cool? A lot of pressure in the rain. Like Jonathan Botters, we're calling you out. This is a challenge. <laughs> we want you on the Beyond the Peloton <laughs> podcast. We want to talk tire pressure. We want to talk time trials. And we have a few questions about 
shoulder to hip um, width ratio as well. Then we want to talk about going back to the Remco Evan pole hip to uh, hip to shoulder ratio. He has no idea what we're talking about. He was hammered when he brought that up. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, tired, low pressure in the rain, wired, 150 PSI in the rain. Um, 19 mil. Something. Yeah, that's 19 what mil on. width. Yeah, they actually, they, they brought out some uh, uh, individual pursuit tires from 1983 for this race, I think. <laughs> Something I, I did, you know, Bissinger went about first. He was the first real contender. Something I thought that was really savvy on quick step part is Easel Empire went really late. And if you've ever ridden on like a city street like that where it's raining, it's really slick early. Because as you're saying, there's a lot of petroleum and oil on the road. The more and more it rains, that gets washed away. So Lampard had such like such more grip on the road than Bissinger, the guys who went first, because everything had been washed away by the time he went. He went. At least that that's my theory about what happened there. We could speculate for days. I want to jump forward here for a second, and I wanted to talk about the decision on the bridge the bridge by Michael Bay. Um, <laughs> gosh, like the most discussed bridge in the history of cycling. I think that we saw there on stage two, 18 kilometers of bridge bridge that you won't forget. And if you've ever ridden across a bridge, I used to live in the Bay area. I rode across the golden gate bridge hundreds of times and you get hit with some wind that you're not going to get hit with on the ground. Maybe seems obvious, maybe doesn't, but when you're up in there and there's nothing to stop that wind coming in off the sea or the ocean from hitting you it's uh it's when like you probably haven't experienced before on a bicycle so the wind was real but the thing that kind of perplexed me and i again i know this has been discussed a lot in the twitterverse spencer but what was your take on the uh commissaires allowing quick step to draft to get back to the peloton after uh, Yves Lampere was involved in that wreck versus EF getting seemingly different treatment and the commissaires stopping the cars and making them just chase all the way back, which huge difference in an energy expenditure. Yeah, I didn't quite understand that. And so when, when EF was chasing, where I, I didn't quite understand where the cars were. I was having a, I need like a, like a JFK. Yeah, grassy yeah, I need some type of like model model here to totally understand that. Did they they purposely pulled the cars out or was EF just so far back that they were behind the cars? I couldn't quite understand that. From what I gathered from listening to the commentators and I I watched both the Peacock and Eurosport broadcast. So I feel like Spencer, I have a 360 view of what happened. <laughs> um but it was very difficult to tell from the images that they provided because they weren't giving an overhead shot of what was happening. And we can do a different podcast at some point in time on the televisual limits of the, uh, the coverage that we're seeing and how it might be improved, but you really couldn't tell what was going on. But what they said was going on was that every time EF got up to the cars the commissaires told the cars to pull over and stop. So they just kind of kept denying EF the ability to, there to ride no through the cars. Car. They were pulled. Yeah, they were pulled over to the right and stopped. Well, here is my theory. Because when Lempark crashes on the bridge, you can't 
full over on a you know it's like the bridge is the entire bridge was like the racing course like there was nowhere for them to pull over so they just had to keep going like once they were on the bridge they're on the bridge you can't the cars cannot stop they have to keep going i'd i'd assume that's what happened there that would be the and it's the yellow jersey you got to show some love to the yellow jersey get them back into that group maybe it's what was they were thinking there. I don't know. It does seem a little weird. There's a lot of weird commissaire decisions. I mean, maybe the thinking is like Iran is a GC contender, make him fight his way back in. Lampar is a token yellow jersey wearer. It's more fun if he gets back in. I wouldn't be shocked if that was the thinking either. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happened there, but it was it was perplexing. I didn't feel that a sufficient explanation was provided and Perhaps there's something really simple, like your theory, Spencer, but that's all it is. It's a theory. We may never know. We'll never know. The, yeah, ASO is a black box. Um, the Iran crashes, crashed twice, stage two and three. It's like simple to see what's going on here. If you're not in the top 30 riders, you probably got held up by a crash on both days. EF, I guess, has decided it's not worth their energy to fight to be in the front. It's worked for them at some points in the past. I, I'm, you know, I'm not shocked that EF is doing that. That makes a lot of sense for them. I'm a little shocked UAE is doing the same thing. They're riding a little bit further up, but Bogachar was last guy through the crash on Saturday and pretty much the last guy through yesterday when that crash happened. I mean, they're really playing with fire. Like, yeah, they must have just decided that they can't, they don't have the firepower to be at the front. That's too hard. And so they're just like floating 20, 30 riders back. It's, it's definitely sketchy. They could get caught out doing this. Yeah. I mean, seeing Pojakar come in on those flats the other day, and we already discussed barriers, but there are just these moments in the race where, as, as you noted, if you're not in the front and if you can't see what's coming, just the course will pinch down you know, to two lanes from four or from five to three, whatever the case may be. There's a funneling that happens and just somebody's going to hit something chaos ensues bikes are flying everywhere and you know you can only get away with it so many times and staying upright is rule number one like you have to stay upright and you have to keep pedaling because once you make contact with the ground you're losing time but also particularly for these gc contenders the body healing from even a even a small incident a small amount of road rash that's energy that they're going to need later in the race to go all out i mean that's actually i went back to try to figure out during the zero if you rarely see riders hit the ground even in a benign manner and go on to win the race and carapaz crashed during the zero and it, it i had it in my notes and i talked to a couple of people that work at teams and they were saying it's not a big deal don't worry about it he crashed in grass and then sure enough he cracks on stage 20 you know, who's to say if that affected them, but it, you do not, the correlation is clear. You do not win Grand Tours after crashing. So it's like, Uran, you know, he might say like, I'm fine, I'm fine. That hasn't, that that's not too bad. It really takes a toll. It like, it's really hard for your body to recover from that and then go on to, to win the race or at least be competitive. Yes, because winning Grand Tours is about 
going fast and having the lowest cumulative time, but really it's about recovery. And that's one of the main things that differentiates winners of Grand Tours from even their world-class peers is they have a higher degree of recoverability and they can come back from these efforts um, better than their peers in the Peloton. And if your body is having to expend energy to repair itself, if you're not getting the best night of sleep possible, and when you're racing for a month straight, it's very hard to sleep over time. You know, you're not going to recover as well. Your body's expending energy, healing itself that it could be putting into just recovery. And on that note, what what did you take? Like, what are your GC takeaways coming out of this weekend? I'm just too preoccupied with whether or not Wout's going to win a stage. Like, that's... That's where my head is at, Spencer. And I'm, I'm also just really stuck on this mystery of why does Wout get to wear the Red Bull helmet and Pidcock does not? I looked into this. Um, it's it's unusual. I guess Red Bull is a sponsor. They say sponsor of Yumbo, the team. I don't see their signage anywhere. I would guess they just throw some cash at the team, like a million euros maybe. And it lets Wout you can't wear stuff that's not as like you can't just have your own personal sponsors because that would disrupt the entire concept of a cycling team um like if you want a piece of wout you gotta pay yumbo who then pays wout in return for his services so they're paying yumbo some amount of money to get access to the helmet space um and it, they're not doing Enios is probably maybe their quotes too high or maybe they're like i could see Enios saying like we don't want a different aesthetic on one rider versus another um because there is one other there's like a ski i don't know schemo i just learned about the sport right. like two years ago uh, but there's like a, a ski mountaineer crossover rider on bora who gets to wear a red bull helmet too for the same reason right yeah perhaps th- perhaps enios is uh pursuing a soylent sponsorship and we'll see soylent helmets at a future edition of the tour yeah the riders have stopped eating solid foods during grand tours and we've decided this is for the best. Um, but that is the beauty of, I mean, you could say if you remain cruel or mean, rude, those were two pretty boring stages on Saturday and Sunday. But the cool thing about these early tour stages is you can get so caught up in the subplot of like, can Wout get this win? Like, who's going to win this sprint? Is Caleb Ewan going to rage win on stage three that you don't, you kind of forget that GC is like a hum in the background. Um, that then starts to slowly build. I did think, A, Pogacar, oh my God, he's really good at time trialing. Like, Ghana, Ghana does 500 watts. He did a 500-watt effort for 20 minutes. No, sorry, 580 watts for 20 minutes right before that time trial. So that means his FTP is around, like, 520. So for Pogacar to be matching him in flat time trials, beating him, you know, he must be doing close to 500 watts on on these flats for a guy that's small that's pretty impressive um something i noticed about ruglich is he was basically like getting off his bike and walking to the corners to not crash and still put in a really good time so that tells me both of those guys are absolutely flying like they must have been making up so much time on the straightaways relative to the because like lampar was really 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 flying to the corners like what does he care if he crashes he just wants to win the stage and the fact that they could even be close to him by playing it safe, it shows that 
I think those two guys plus Vindegaard, I mean, this isn't any, this isn't anything breaking, are like just a step above everybody else at the moment in the GC. Yeah, and I think, you know, let's see what goes down on stage five because I, it feels like going across those 11 sectors from the Paris-Roubaix course on stage five, to me, that's the next big moment of GC action. There's a survivability aspect of that. There's who's going to have contact with the ground or not. And going back to Iran, who can stay in the front and be safely shepherded through that experience and just make it to the finish in one piece? Because we're likely to see the snow globe get shaken there. But yeah, the data suggests that things are kind of panning out as predicted. And we're going to, we have all of the GC favorites absolutely flying. And we're going to see quite a battle here in the coming stages. Do you like those cobblestone stages in the tour? Yeah, I like anything that's new or different, including starting in in new and different countries. I think it just brings a different energy and vibe to the race. If I were a racer, I'm not sure that I would like it because I think the probability that we're going to see some serious injuries and race ending crashes on stage five is high. But I think from a viewability point of view, it makes it more interesting and compelling um, viewing. What do you think, Spencer? I'm kind of of two minds about it. I'm excited for it already, and it's on Wednesday, so that should tell you it's probably a good idea. Sometimes I feel like, like I felt like I was pumped when it was happening when Vincenzo Nibali basically won the Tour de France in the first week on the cobblestones. You know, I I would be a little bit disappointed if we came out of that stage and. I don't know, Pagachar's seven minutes in front of everyone else because they all crashed. That that would kind of be a bummer. So I, I like and I think they have been, I'm trying to think of like recent years. There's been a little bit of shakeup. You know, there was the one where John Deckenkolb won. I believe Tony Martin won another one. You know, people lose some time, but it's not catastrophic for the entire DC picture. But yeah, I like the new stuff. I like, I really like the gravel. It, there was like the 2020, 2021 Giro d'Italia had like the gravel. I thought that was, I almost preferred that to the cobblestones because it's a little bit more mild. I'd say a little bit more dynamic in terms of the racing. The cobblestones are so harsh, but you know, on the other hand, if you want to win the tour, like this is in France, this is like, these are French roads, like. Why do they go over mountains? That's cruel. People lose time on mountains. Like, couldn't you just make the same argument that like Alp d'Huez is unfair because some riders lose a lot of time? So, you know, that's ultimately where I land is like, if you're doing a road in France, seems like it's fair game to me. Or as you say, in any other country, because the foreign starts are kind of fun. It makes the first week more interesting, certainly relative to past editions of the tour where it was more of a procession to a series of lead out trains, you know, fighting for a sprint victory and a relatively boring flat stage. Those types of stages just don't seem to exist anymore. So I appreciate the injection of drama into the race through stunt stages or the inclusion of stunts, such as the bridge by Michael Bay that we saw on stage two. And that, that ended up doing nothing. Yeah, but I mean, like, that's a perfect example. I mean, stage yeah. five, like, we're kind of amping up the drama here. I just amped it up. But equally, who knows? Maybe it'll be a really mellow ride across the cobbles, 11th sectors there on stage five. 
You do uh, never know. I mean, that it seems fanciful to think that could easily happen. That it just it's a dry, non-windy day, and they just kind of race over the cobblestone. Yeah, or sometimes when we see the peloton subjected to trial by ASO course selection, they'll just sometimes have a truce within the peloton and opt to take it easy, right? I don't think oh, that's what's going to happen. I don't on think. I don't stage think in, the five in the Pogacar era, there's no truces. That guy is a killer. I will say tomorrow, I'm just looking at the profile for stage four. Let's not overlook that. It, it's the coast with 23K to go, 24K to go. And that's a rough coastline along the Strait of Dover. And it's hilly. I mean, that could, that could get spicy too. That's kind of the fun thing about these modern tours is you never, like think of 2020. Wasn't the biggest gap on stage seven when Pogacar flatted in the crosswinds and lost like a minute? And that was until the time trial on stage 20, that was the biggest GC gap between Roglic and Pogacar. So you never know when these like mini events will, will pop up, which I find exciting. I don't feel like I'm watching a grand tour until I can see 70% of one of Primo's Roglic's buttocks um, covered in road rash. With oh, his, it's coming. His shorts flapping around. But on that Lock topic, it in for stage yeah, five, it could be coming. On the topic of of crashes, I was digging back through the archives trying to find a stat on this because apparently Groenwagen was caught up in uh in that crash with about ten k to go in stage three before then taking the victory, and I was trying to recall because this has happened enough that I want to get some kind of stat on this. Maybe you have it in, in your database somewhere, Spencer, but I was trying to remember which grand tours this happened in last year. Unfortunately, I couldn't pull the data, but it does seem to be somewhat common that a top sprinter will be get jammed up with a mechanical or in a crash, maybe within 10K of the finish, yet come back, work their way back through the peloton, find their lead out train and actually win. So I was starting to wonder if there, it seems highly improbable. We just talked about the high energy cost of crashing, but I'm wondering if the adrenaline dump from hitting the deck that close to the finish gives some kind of boost to someone and enables some kind of hyper focus to actually go on and be even more focused in the sprint and take the victory. Now, this is a very far-fetched conspiracy theory, but there might be something to it. What do you think? It, it probably doesn't hurt. I do. These sprints are a lot different. I find them to be more exciting. That you, you mentioned just a moment ago, like the lines, the trains rolling out from like 20K to go and Cavendish wouldn't touch the wind and then win easily. Um, it's not like that anymore. I mean, these trains are smaller. Uh, the, the approaches are slower because of that. You know, a lot of guys will just have two or three lead out riders at most. I think that makes it easier to catch on. Like in, in the olden day, if you crashed with 10K to go, there's no way you could catch back on. You're not going to get that sprint train. Um, but I noticed they are catching the brakes like really early. Like they caught the break yesterday on stage three with like 50K to go. So that means if you crash with 10K to go, you potentially can catch back on because the riders up front aren't chasing a breakaway furiously to try to catch them before they sprint. So that that's definitely helping the fact that we're getting these slower approaches into the sprints and, you know, they really don't, you know, you don't really see like when they crashed with 10 K to go, there was like no arrowhead, so to speak. It was just like a blunted front, which I thought was, it was on I thought it was unusual how close they were to the finish and how like slow they were going, which makes it dangerous because 
they all got compressed in that when the road narrowed. So, I mean, it that definitely doesn't hurt though. If you hit the ground, as long as you're not hurt, you can get an adrenaline dump. And if you can get a new bike that's not damaged, I, I don't think it's a crazy theory. Going back to the lead out trains, it seems like they actually are still there, but they're starting way, way farther out. I noticed that yesterday around 25K to go, it was, you know, the road was super wide, but there were five different teams that were in individual pace lines lined up across the front of the Peloton, absolutely drilling it. And it did eventually slow down, but it was kind of wild to me to see them going that hard and that organized of a fashion from that far out. But I think it also shows how many teams want to get in the mix for that sprint and are going all in. I think they're almost like coal seams in there. You know, when you see them yeah. up above you. I, I do. I almost think that's more of like positioning battles than lead out. You know, it's because everyone's like, well, I want to be at the front. If everyone thinks they want to be at the front, it's harder to get to the front because only so many people can be at the front. There's a finite amount of space. So like, and they're not going, they're, just, they're going fast solely to get to the front and stay at the front, which makes the race a lot faster. It makes it harder to be at the front. So it's like this funny jockeying you get where, yeah, everyone's side by side by side leading out, but it's just really to hold that position on the front. It does use it. I mean, Yumbo, a lot of it too is like Ineos is up there. It's like, think like, well, that's weird. They're not going to win a sprint, but they just want to stay up front. So like they're up front with their whole team jacking the pace up until 3K to go. And then Yumbo is kind of the odd team where they want to be at the front for the GC, but they also have, sprint ambitions so i guess that works for them it is i mean i I did notice that and like sometimes yumbo is doing that from like 60k out that is using a a massive amount of energy i'm curious to see like our next sprint stage i guess tomorrow could be a sprint stage it won't be like that it's going to be a little bit more rough um i'd be curious to see like stage 13 is a sprint stage and sun at the end i bet it's not like that i i bet the fatigue has set in and we see like a lot the formations are a lot different than what we saw this weekend when everyone's super fresh and there's no hills in that country. I was shocked by that. Like I think the longest, the highest climb was 171 meters, which is it's like four or 500 feet. And that's the highest mountain they could find in the country. So Denmark confirmed flat. If anyone was wondering, except for the bridge by Michael Bay, the bridge might've been the biggest climb they did. <laughs> Over the weekend, I was worried someone was going to fall off that bridge. That would have put a damper on the weekend, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. And we discussed this uh, via text during the race, and it's been written about, but that's why they had them on the left side of the bridge so that they had the divider on their right. So, so no one could fly off the bridge. But we did see uh, when Yves Lampert went down, he was actually really close to, to the uh, yeah. left side of the bridge and someone's yeah. bike like flew into the barriers so potentially somebody could have could have gone over but thankfully the wind uh the wind kept them on the span i mean kaylee frets was tweeting like do they have boats down there to get people if they fall it's like kaylee i got bad news for you if someone goes over like it's not ending well there's no no rescue boat will help you if you fall off a 600 foot suspension bridge. 
I you know Spencer. I know we've got to wrap it up here soon to go grab some apple pie and watch some fireworks here on the Fourth of July. But wanted to get your take on the stage three sprint. There's been a lot of jabbering about Wout shutting the door on Sagan. That of course having a knock on impact on Caleb Ewan, who you know has expressed his frustration with the manner in which the sprint unfolded. Uh, should Wout have been relegated? Are we anywhere close to the territory of 2017 Sagan elbow gate? Um, if you really read the rules, they basically say you can only get relegated or DQ'd. Relegated is maybe a little bit softer if you like severely, severely injure somebody. Um, Sagan, Elbowgate, I still don't, I'm still not in a good place about that. They really screwed him over, but Cavendish crashed really hard on that stage, which is why the punishment was so severe. You know, I, I don't know, like he definitely went into him. I'm of the mind of like, there's no rules to sprint finishes. Like if you've ever sprinted in a race, like if you, as long as you like win, you can do whatever you want. The the winner was correct. The winner writes the history of sprint finishes. Um, I thought the Wout move was a little dangerous. I thought it was completely unnecessary. Like Sagan's not coming by you. The guy is not fast anymore. And I say that like, obviously he's faster than me and he's faster than many people, but he doesn't have that top end speed anymore. He needs to be in front of you. He was not coming by Van Art. Van Art moved over and his punishment is he didn't win the stage because he was moving sideways as opposed to moving forward. If he just keeps going straight, I think he wins that stage. But yeah, it was, it was dangerous. It shows you these guys are insane people. Like the thought of, oh, someone's coming up the inside. I'll just pin them into the barriers and we'll all go. We could all potentially crash at 75K an hour. Like that's insane. That's an insane thing to do. So he probably just felt someone coming from that side and thought, I'll, I'll shut him off in the corner. Yeah, Ewan almost got squished in there. I mean, it's, it's sketchy. Ewan shouldn't have been, full disclosure, I work for, Lado Sudal analyzing their spent finishes. The thing that they're struggling with is Ewan should have been where Gronovagen was because Gronovagen could see that happening and and went left, you know, where the momentum was taking everyone right. He could go left. He got a clear run to the finish. Ewan was too far back because the team is just like really not communicating well together. I mean, everyone else had a rider in front of them, a teammate in front of them in the last corner. Ewan didn't. And that you you won't get good position if that's the case. So you, I mean, and you and picked that line because he was desperate because he couldn't go left because Gronovagen had the better position. You know, for the kids out there, if like sprinting against the barriers is a dangerous game, you only do that if you have no other choice. Yeah, and I mean, in 2017, the Manx missile once launched, like you can't put the launch code back in the box. So, <laughs> right? I mean, like when I was watching the stage yesterday, and specifically Caleb, and thinking about Sagan elbow gate in 2017. Yeah, Kevin is going right into that. Yeah, it would have been as you know the analogy yesterday would have been Caleb saw the door was shut and decided to initiate launch sequence and hit turbo anyway and then just rode into Sagan and then uh, of course the onto the feet of the barriers and then uh, that would have been really really bad uh, one more thing before we go here Spencer what did you make of Morkov um 
you know, did, seemingly there was a bit of a lack of communication in the quick step lead out yesterday. Is that just the chaos of the race or what do you think happened there? Because Morkov was at the front and quick steps, you know, had they kept things together, I think that they probably would have won the stage, but that doesn't really count. They didn't almost win the stage they lost. So what do you think happened there? Definitely a rare mistake from Morkov, who's the best leadout man in the world. I think he's been a little bit outclassed by Laporto in the last two stages. You know, he kind of lost. They he wasn't. He got decoupled a little bit from Jakobsen before that corner. Jakobsen goes through the corner like, like he didn't know it was coming. I was a little surprised by that. He's like he was going too fast, went way too far outside. Morkov's on the front, and then gives Laporte and Van Aert the perfect lead out and not a great situation. I mean, really what should have happened is he gets through the corner, realizes Jakobsen isn't there and sits up to then inhibit those guys at the front. So Jakobsen could maybe try to come back, but by keeping the speed high, he really just helped Jakobsen. He helped everyone else keep Jakobsen buried. Not a good situation. Um, I, yeah, I don't, you know, Jakobsen, I guess that's like the, Thing I'm always unsure is like when it's a really tricky technical finish, is he the guy? You know, it's like if we saw today, he did kind of struggle in that corner. More if we interviewed Morkov, you know, he was probably saying, like, that guy, he's got to stand my wheel. Like, what's his problem? Like, it's not my responsibility to like shepherd him through. We're all pros here, but you know, I don't know. I was I was a little surprised by the lack of communication there that I think he needed to be a little bit more cognizant of like who his sprinter was. He did he didn't have Mark Cavendish on his wheel and he was racing like it was Mark Cavendish. Like he would be there no matter what. Yeah, and it's been interesting to hear Jakobsen and Groenwagen talk about their respective comebacks from the incident that they had several years ago that uh nearly resulted in Jakobsen's death. And Jakobsen apparently because he had such severe TBI from the wreck and he did, you know, he could have lost his life in that incident. Thankfully he did not. And now he's back, but he has no memory of what happened. So apparently he says he doesn't actually have lingering fear related to being in these situations. But when I was watching the stage yesterday and him losing Morkov's wheel, making that miscalculation in an incredibly chaotic finale, I had to wonder if there was something at play there. I mean, he didn't indicate anything, but I wondered if that might have been part of it. And then, of course, Groenwagen <clears throat> taking the victory, highly emotional because he's really been struggling psychologically with what you have to do in those situations where there's a high degree of physical contact um, in a finale like we saw yesterday. And then... McEwen, I don't know if this was out in the public record prior to yesterday, but once Groenwagen took the victory, McEwen talked about how he's been a sprint whisperer, more or less, and has been helping with his comeback, and particularly the psychological and positional aspects of it, not, not so much anything to do with training. But I thought that that was really interesting, and I, like, I'm looking forward to hearing more from McEwen about what he's actually been doing and how he's been helping Groenwagen regain his confidence because this is a confidence game. He seems to struggle from the crash more than Jakobsen, probably because he has a better memory of it, maybe. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That was, his, that was his first World Tour win since the crash in 2020. So it was cool to see him back. Apparently they hate each other. Did you, did you hear this? 
I mean, I have to imagine when someone seemingly intentionally tries to tries kill to you, murder you. That, yeah, yeah you probably great. don't like them very much. And I mean, there also was uh, following the crash once Jakobsen was out of hospital, he and Groenwagen had a meeting and they had some kind of discussion and then Groenwagen got on Twitter and said more or less, we've squashed it, everything's cool. And Jakobsen then of course came out and made a statement and said, yeah, that's not the case. Things aren't cool. This guy nearly killed me. So the stakes are high. Yeah, I guess it just goes back to what I was saying about Ben Art. Like, it, it's a slight psychopathic thought of like, I feel someone coming along the barrier. Let me push him into the barrier. That's not good. That's not a nice thing to do. So it makes sense that people wouldn't be getting along when you're always at risk of getting just crashed into a barrier at 75K an hour by another rider. Yeah, it was really interesting to see Sagan again, the perpetrator of the 2017 elbow gate against the Manx missile, to wag his finger at Wout at the finish because he clearly was pissed off that Wout had, had come over on him and you know tried to ride him into the barriers. At least that was my read, and then gave Wout like the pat on the back at the finish. I saw Lantern Rouge, you know, was speculating about what was said in that exchange, but I think we can all guess. Yeah, and I I think they had some type of I was trying to remember 2020 that this will be literally the last thing I say. I know we're going way too long. Um, they had some sort of dust up in 2020 where I think Sagan it, the roles were reversed and Sagan was coming over onto Wow. I think I could be wrong about that, but I I'm sure that Sagan I don't know. They say, there seems to be some sort. They're not real sprinters though. I guess that's the difference. Like. They're just like masquerading and sprint finishes as sprinters, but they do other things. So maybe they're able to like step outside the moment a little bit more than the guys whose careers it is are to cross the line first. And maybe you have to crash some people out to do that. Yeah. For anyone out there listening who's been to Burning Man and also has followed the sprinting career of Peter Sagan, Peter Sagan looks like he's contact dancing. He looks like he's doing improvisational contact dancing when he's working his way through a group to get to the the end of a sprint. Just like so much body contact. I mean, it's almost early McEwen level body contact. McEwen, Stuart O'Grady. I mean, he's not headbutting anyone because they would definitely eject you from the race at, during this epoch if you were getting that flagrant with it but wow everything short of that just all over other riders like the speed is gone but then he's still able to carve through fields because he's just literally like bouncing off people it's i'm sure it sucks to be in the race with him it's pretty fun to watch though it's it's quite impressive yeah it is fun to watch i mean we've seen the way he can move his hips in that specialized grease video i don't know if you remember that one where they did yeah 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 lincoln show notes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right well we'll let you and everyone get off to your fourth of july celebrations if you're a royalist and you're just waiting for the return of the throne this is a tough day for you but we have this episode for you to help you get through it so thanks andrew for joining us and we'll be back after right after that uh cobblestone stage actually on wednesday to, to record to hopefully report on some some exciting stuff yeah, I'm just going to go pump my tires up to about 180 PSI clinchers and get in a freedom ride right now. And as we mentioned earlier, if any of you want to be in touch, Jonathan Vodders, um, anyone, you can hit us up on Twitter at BTP Cycling. 
for Spencer at Vots or at Hardway Pod for me. Thanks for listening and looking forward to talking to you all again soon. All right. Thanks, everyone. And talk to you soon, Andrew. Bye. Yeah. Talk to you.